Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Scorpions might terrify most people, like myself, but to scientist Lauren Esposito, they're the foundation of her career, which has taken her from her home in El Paso, Texas, through graduate school in New York, and here to us in the Bay at the California Academy of Sciences. In addition to discovering new species of these arachnids, she's also become an outspoken advocate for queer scientists. An ongoing exhibit she curated at the California Academy of Sciences celebrates the contributions of LGBT, LGBTQ plus people. And Esposito joins us as part of our first person series, which profiles leaders and change makers in the Bay Area. Welcome to Forum, Dr. Lauren Esposito. Hi, thank you so much. Happy Friday. Oh, yeah, same to you. We've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, I need to know first, because I'm terrified of scorpions, when did you find your first scorpion? And were you like, oh, cool, a scorpion? Or or what happened? I mean, I think that my reaction was the same as like pretty much anybody else in the world's reaction when they first saw a scorpion, which was I was scared. I think that's pretty mm-hmm. natural. Um, I grew up in the desert southwest, which is a place that I think like most people identify with scorpions here in here in the U.S. and and certainly I saw scorpions as a kid growing up and kept a, a far distance from them because they were terrifying. Right. So how did I mean, how did you go from that um, being terrified of, of scorpions to, to basically devoting your life to them? Well, you know, I think it, it was it was a wild ride full of mistakes uh, and missteps along the way, that which all worked out really, really well. But I went, you know, I think like most young people, I went to college trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, I fell up. I fell into the lap of scorpions, so to speak, during a summer internship at the <laughs> Hopefully American not literally. University. Hopefully sort of just figuratively fell into the lap of scorpions. Just, just, just figuratively, <laughs> although I will say that I, I um, definitely was taken aback by natural history museums and the collections contained within natural history museums. And so in that sense, like I did fall into the lap of scorpions because their natural history museums have old specimens. Those specimens are a record of life on earth in a specific time and place. And my job then during that summer internship was to go through this incredible collection of scorpions from Southern Africa and, and carefully database and curate those specimens. And, and for me, it was the first time I'd seen the behind the scenes of a natural history museum. And it was the first time I'd ever like been up close and personal with a scorpion, really. Mm. So this is like, you've basically got a big drawer. You've got drawers full of scorpions that you're like opening and you're sort of taking them out and you're making sure that they've been tagged properly and they're like geolocated on a map. Like that's what you're doing for the whole summer. That is That was like basically my summer. But in addition to all that, I also got to extract DNA out of their leg muscles. Um, and so that unlocked like a whole other world for me, which is studying the DNA of, of the animal of animals. 
Yeah, I guess that's, you know, that's my other question. I know that you, and I'm going to ask you about this in a second, I know that you, like, go around the Caribbean finding scorpions, uh, which the first part sounds great, True. at least. Um, <laughs> but what is the what is the science that you're sort of reaching for? Like, what are you trying to, to use these specimens to explain about how the world works? Well, I think that's a really great question. Um, and it might sound like I think to most people like pretty quite esoteric that I study scorpions, but but really scorpions have, they've been around for about 430 million years, um, and they're, they're even though we associate them with desert ecosystems, they're everywhere. Like California is a hot spot for diversity of scorpions, and they're really really important parts of ecosystems that have evolved alongside these scorpions. And so one of the things that my lab is really focused on is making up for the gap in human knowledge. We only have discovered somewhere around 50% of arachnids, which is scorpions and spiders and other related organisms that are living on earth today. Like we don't know very much about them. And so what that means is that we don't know very much about how ecosystems function, how to detect early warning signs that ecosystems aren't functioning anymore and what we can do to intervene when things start to fall apart. And, and that's really what I've tasked my lab with, with figuring out. Also, what happens to scorpions after a big fire like we've seen here in the state? I mean, are we are we destroying the scorpion ecosystems? We are. And and in fact, we're doing this huge project statewide right now where we're going to um, pretty much all of the forested ecosystems in the state of California, looking for this one species of scorpion that we find almost in all the forests. And what we found, and it's quite been quite devastating of a year for us during this collecting expeditions, is that in all the places where the where the fire was really intense, they're gone. They're just mm. gone. And these are long-lived animals. They can live for up, up to 25 years. They're slow animals. Their metabolism is really slow. They walk really slow. Like they're not flying through the air. And so the amount of time that it's going to take them to come back after the forest starts to regenerate, we have no idea about. And, and so we're trying to really establish that baseline still. Oh. You we're talking with Lauren Esposito about her life and work as curator of arachnology at the California Academy of Sciences. And we want to hear from you. Do you have any pressing questions about scorpions? And if you're in science and identify as LGBTQ, what's your experience of the field been? You can give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So, Dr. Esposito, I, I wanted to ask you about the work that you've done uh, with 500 queer scientists. Um, what was the what was the hope with that campaign? And what is it? How do you actually execute? Oh, great question. And my, I think my favorite topic, really, um, even though I love scorpions, <laughs> uh, is talking about the experience of LGBTQ people working in science, technology, engineering, mathematics and medicine, uh, the STEM fields, as we call them. And, and, you know, I, I had this like sort of life epiphany a few years back uh, in 2018, where I realized that I, I, had, I had my dream job. My dream job is the curator of arachnology at the California Academy of Sciences. As, a, as, a, as an arachnologist, there's not very many of those jobs in the country. Uh, and I'd managed to secure one. And, I, and it was in a really, really queer friendly city, which for me was very important because as an out queer person, uh, I wanted to live somewhere where it was comfortable comfortable for me to express my identity. Mm-hmm. And I, re- I, I just had this moment where I realized that the Cal Academy, it's the oldest natural history museum west of the Mississippi. It's one of the oldest scientific institutions in the state of California. It was 165 years old at the time that I had this realization 
that I was the first openly queer and probably even closeted queer curator in the mm. history of this scientific institution. And why, you know, the question is, why is that? Um, and I think the, the answer is, is, is complex. It's complex, it's nuanced, um, but it has a lot to do with the history of the experience of being queer in science uh, and the ways that people who, who are queer have been ostracized and excluded from either actively from science or from talking about their identity within the context of their profession. Is that when you decided to put on this exhibition at Cal Academy? Is that when you were like, okay, this is a nuanced and difficult issue. I'm going to tell the stories of individual people and how they've come up so people can kind of see that whole array of experiences. Yes, but actually not yet. So my first step was I I launched this visibility campaign called 500 Queer Scientists. Um, And it was really, uh, in many ways, a way for me to tell my story of being a queer person in the context of my identity as a scientist. Mm. Um, It's a social media campaign. And when we launched, I had managed to find 50 other LGBTQ identifying scientists out there in the world somewhere. Uh, And so we launched with these 50 stories not really knowing what was going to happen. Um, and, and over time, the number of stories contributed to our campaign has grown to over 1,600. It re- represents people from all around the world, from almost every stage of the career, all the way from like directors of major research institutes like CERN in Europe um, to undergraduate students and people really just looking for a way to express and celebrate their identities. Mm. And that spirit of celebration is what brought me to the point of, of launching this, this new exhibit at the Cal Academy. Yeah. And so what's in the exhibit? Tell, tell us a little bit about it for people. It's still up, right? It's up through uh, early is. next year. Yeah. Yes, please come see it. So, so New Science uh, is a, an exhibit up on the public floor at the Cal Academy, but also an exhibit that's available free of charge for any other public space in the world to, to, to show in their own space. Um, and it's, it's an exhibit that focuses on queer and intersectional identities of women, gender nonconforming, transgender people who are also in many cases, people of color or immigrants, um, and how that complex identity mm-hmm. makes their science better, and mm. how how it's not about um, this this sort of minus or deficit perspective of how we how their work has been hindered or their identities have hindered their ability to do science, but really why, why their identity. And I think that this is what's really revolutionary about new science. In addition to it being the first ever exhibit focused on LGBTQ identities in a science museum ever in the world, um, is that that it really talks about how these queer and intersectional identities make people better scientists and make science better. Um, Because it means that people who have complex intersectional identities think about and approach problems in new and different ways. And we, as a global community, really need those new ways of thinking if we're ever going to tackle the major problems that we're experiencing globally, like like global climate change and things like COVID. Um, and so we need the, the, that, that diverse perspective of, of views and, and interpretations of, of data and science. Well, how about for you? I mean, how do you think your multifaceted intersexual identity has influenced your particular science? That's a great question. And it's one that, 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 I, that I think about often. Um, because I, I, you know, I, as as much as I advocate for how identities make you better scientists, I wonder in my own self how I, how my particular identity has made me a better science scientist. And I think, you know, for one for one thing, it's made me realize the importance of advocacy and being an advocate for something. Mm. Um, I like really never thought about myself as 
as like a diversity, equity, and inclusion person or an advocate or, or um, an activist, I would even say. Like, I, I just never had that, that self-reflection of my identity and, and framed in that way. And, and in thinking about new science, I started to think about the ways that my experience impacted me and how I can change the culture of science to influence the, the perspective of future generations, right? And so while I think that it has had an impact on my science and on the ways that I've interpreted the world around me, I also think that like, for me personally, it's led my path to a place where not only do I wanna do science better, but I want science to be better. And, and I think in many ways, that's, that's sort of my personal path going forward. Yeah. You know, I wondered, maybe this is, uh, you, you tell me if this makes sense, but I wonder if it maybe changes your relationship to the places where you're doing field work too. Maybe it sensitizes you to some things about the power dynamics of scientists coming in from the outside to sort of collect the specimens of, the, of, of a local place. Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. And, and I think that we're entering, you know, from the perspective of natural history, natural history is really ingrained with colonialism, like the, the origins of the practice of natural yeah, history totally. were like the Victorian era, people going and sort of conquering places on earth by collecting specimens and extracting those specimens and bringing them back to Europe or North America. And I think that that colonialism mindset is is something that that's in turmoil at the moment. I think most mm of the current generation of young natural historians understand and recognize that there has to be a better way to do this and that we're never going to solve the global biodiversity crisis that's happening, which is a, a crisis that's real. We, we're experiencing decline of species on earth at a rate that's unprecedented. And so as somebody who spends their life and their career studying species and I documenting the earth to see that decline and that rate of decline means that we're up against a race that we're not winning, like the race of decline is greater than our ability to do science, which means we need to do science smarter and better. But most importantly, what we need to do is empower and provide resources directly to, to, to allow for autonomy of science in places of the world that normally haven't had access to, to the scientific resources needed to do this kind of work. And, and that means, yes, absolutely changing the way that we go to places, conduct field work, who we're interacting with. And more importantly, who gets credit for the science that's being done, and and that's something that I that I care absolutely passionately about, and and something that I'm attempting to tackle uh, in my own work. But I think you know, in addition, in addition to that, like as it pertains specifically to queer identities, like my lab is a, is almost entirely a queer lab. Like the students, and it's not because I'm going out there and actively trying to recruit students and mentees who identifies LGBTQ, it's because they're looking for that mentorship. Mm. Um, and so like that makes me very excited and super proud to know that, that people are coming to my lab to study scorpions, which may not necessarily have what they thought was gonna be their life passion. Um, and, and they're doing that because they wanna be young scientists in a place and a space that feels super comfortable for them. Yeah. Uh, wanna talk a little bit about local scorpions. We've got some uh, questions coming in about that. One listener asks, I regularly see scorpions in my downstairs room and garage in the North Bay. Is this type of scorpion dangerous? What happens if I get stung? First of all, I do not think I would go into my downstairs room if I regularly saw scorpions. And what do you, but, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's like sharks, you know, we're, we're a bigger yeah. danger to them than they are to us. 
Well, that is that is definitely true that it is like sharks. So far, we've documented somewhere around twenty five hundred species of scorpion on Earth, and and like like fewer than one percent of those are dangerous to humans in any wow. real significant way. Um, you know, all scorpions like like sh all sharks have teeth. All scorpions have a stinger. They can sting you. It hurts. Um, it mostly in most experiences feels like a like a mild bee sting. Um, with effects lasting for just a few hours at, or maybe a day. Um, so, you know, pretty mild localized pain. So you've gotten well, you've once, gotten stung by scorpions. I've gotten stung probably by the only scorpion that that person finds in their basement, um, which I'm guessing because it's the most common thing um, that, that, that people see in areas, in areas around the bay. Yeah. Uh, it's the Western forest scorpion. So this, the scorpion that I mentioned earlier, that's found in forests throughout the state of California. And um, it's really totally harmless like i have what's it look like it. what's it look like it, what color it, is it yeah it's like really dark brown sort of like a walnut color maybe and mm -hmm. and it's maybe like the length of your thumb depending how long your thumbs are wow. uh and it's you know scorpions like most things they they really don't want to sting you that stinging you is an absolute last resort that they only do if they feel like their life is in danger and they might die imminently so uh, no need to worry. You can pick it up. Like also, scorpions can't jump, which I think is like something that when I learned felt relieving. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're not like spiders; like they can't launch themselves in the air. They can just run, and they're not even really good at running like up things in a vertical space. Uh, so they can just run. So you can scoop it into a, a even a just a dustpan and and throw it outside, and it would be very happy to be returned to the wild. God. Um Another listener asks, this is one of the best questions we've ever gotten on this show. What is going on with a scorpion's face? <laughs> what is going on with a scorpion? There's so much going on with a scorpion's face because what the super cool thing about scorpions is like like other arachnid groups, they have a lot of eyes, right? Like spiders, we know they have tons of eyes. Scorpions also have tons of eyes. And in fact, they have three sets of eyes. And those three sets of eyes are arranged kind of in a triangle with two sets up at the front corners of their head and one set right in the middle. And some people have hypothesized that because of the arrangement of their eyes, they're able to triangulate their position from starlight, which is crazy. Like Whoa. triangulation is the way that your phone knows where you are. It looks up in right. the sky and finds like cell towers. They have special IGPS. Yeah. yeah, they have like IGPS. Exactly. It's so crazy. Wow, that's amazing. Um, we have been talking with Lauren Esposito as part of our first person series, which profiles leaders and change makers in the Bay Area. Tell us one more time, Lauren, about uh, Dr. Esposito, about the exhibition at Cal Academy, when people can see it too. Yeah, so come, come, come to the Cal Academy. We're open for business. We've launched a new exhibit called New Science, which focuses on queer and intersectional identities of women and gender minorities in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and medicine. Uh, you can see that for the foreseeable future, at least through March, uh, up on our public floor. You can also visit it virtually if you're not in the Bay Area on the Cal Academy Google Arts and Culture Digital Museum platform. Um, we have a full digital museum uh, exhibit that, that, that tells all these stories of these amazing That's people. Awesome. Dr. Esposito is curator of Arachnology at the Cal Academy of Sciences. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Have a good weekend.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.